I want to echo what Pastor Brandon said. I, uh, this issue of kids' ministry, we really want to have this available, um, but it'll take, it'll take people. And if I can encourage you this way, um, uh, over the years I've, I've watched and I've been part of things we do in the church to try to draw out volunteers. If God's, just pray about it. And if God's not calling you to help, that's fine. But don't conclude that until you pray about it. Is that fair? Don't conclude that until you pray about it. All right, you want to find the book of John in your Bible, chapter 6. Today we wrap up uh, a series, that, a mini-series that we started four weeks ago entitled, What Price Tag for Mission Success? We looked at Matthew 24, 14, where Jesus says that um, all people groups uh, will have the gospel uh, proclaimed to them and then the end will come and so there's a sense that Jesus return awaits that uh, work by the by the church what price tag for mission success we talked about things like fear uh, the prospect of suffering and the willingness willingness to suffer for the gospel uh, last week we we took a little short-term mission trip virtually uh, to India and then we're going to do the same Thing today and I, my prayer is that this would not simply be a uh, four weeks okay we move on to the next topic and uh, and we forget about the, the, the mission that we have ingrained in our souls imprinted on our souls that the mission is what God left us here for there's a lot of other good things in life a lot of other wonderful things that we delight in and we enjoy it but the mission is why God left you, if you're a Christian, if you're a follower of Jesus, why he left you here, why he left me here. Why in the world wouldn't he just take us home to glory after we said yes to Jesus and um, uh, bought by Christ's blood? What price tag for mission success? And I hope that that, uh, that that question will linger in your soul for some time to come. But what price tag am I willing to pay in order for mission success in my life? And we started out talking uh, not primarily about overseas mission but about local mission about the circles of influence that we uh, move in our jobs our schools our neighborhoods our communities our extended families and uh, because mission success involves the impact uh, for those here who do not, do not know Christ as well well we're going to talk about Yemen this morning the country of Yemen Message is entitled Yemen's Hunger, so we're going to do another uh, virtual uh, short-term mission trip, but let's ask God for his help before we do that. Father, we worship you and we exalt you as the songs we've sung this morning have reminded us you are worthy of our praise. You are worthy of our adoration. You are worthy of of the worship that we give you, the worship that we sing, the worship that we pray, the worship that has musical notes attached to it, and the vast uh, sphere of worship that has no musical notes attached to it. Rather, it's um, lived out in our words of prayer, and it's lived out in our deeds of worship to you, that in thankfulness we live and move and have our being directed toward your glory and not just for our pleasure your glory 
And as the psalmist tells us, as we um, delight ourselves in you, in other words, that as you become more and more our delight, you become more and more our pleasure, as the other things that are admittedly uh, joyful and fulfilling in our lives, as they lose the top spot in our hearts, that you become more and more our complete satisfaction so that our world is not shattered or destroyed when this piece of joy or that piece of joy is taken from us because you are the fulfillment of our joy. And we desire that not just for ourselves, for the, but for the people to the ends of the earth. As we sang this morning, we cry out, Lord, that your glory would fill the earth like the waters cover the sea. And we would, we would long for the day when the psalmist's desire would come true. Let all the peoples praise you. Let all the ends of the earth fear you. And even today, Lord, we think about the people of Yemen. People who are living in what the United Nations has called the worst humanitarian worst humanitarian crisis on planet earth and we pray for them we pray for their physical needs for food we pray for the health needs of their bodies in the midst of uh, almost a total breakdown of health system in that country we 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 pray for a a breaking of the bondage of addiction to cats and all the destruction that that has contributed to. We pray for an end to war and so that people can return to their homes. We, we pray for the bombs and missiles to stop dropping, falling, for the guns to go silent. We pray for an end to the terrorist groups that have their haunts in Yemen, for Al-Qaeda and other splinter groups. We pray that you would move in the hearts of the warring factions of the loyalist government and of the rebels. We pray for you to do things that seemingly we cannot do. Maybe that's a good place for us to be. You would bring hope to Yemen. And not just a hope for their circumstances and life to be peaceful again, but the living hope of the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. About four years ago, I was uh, on the phone with a leader of a mission that works uh, in some really hard places. And I asked him, I said, if if I wanted to take a small team on a vision trip to Yemen, could you get us in? Now, four years ago, Yemen was a disaster. Um, But what it is today is almost unspeakable. Um, It was quiet on the other end of the line for a little while, and then he said, I think so. And he proceeded to tell me who he would contact and the route that we would go. He said, we are not adverse to risk, but we also don't take foolish risks. And so we haven't pursued that trip, but that might be possible in the future. About two months ago, the United States State Department issued this travel advisory for Yemen. Do not travel to Yemen. Do, in other words, it's not 
suggest that you don't, don't travel to Yemen. Due to COVID-19, terrorism, civil unrest, health risks, kidnapping, armed conflict, and landmines. It's like the only thing missing is, and a pack of wolves will greet you at the airport. I thought it's, it, it was interesting and probably indicative of, of how modern Westerners think that despite being followed by terrorism, civil unrest, health risks, kidnapping, armed conflict, and landmines, they started with the greatest danger is COVID-19. Eight years ago, I uh, began writing a novel. I've, I've started writing about three or four books, and I get bored with them about page 15 and never get anywhere. Uh, the novel's a little different. That's been, that's been fun. And one of the characters in the novel is from Yemen. And so, as part of my uh, research, I went online and I looked up, I googled books on Yemen. And back then, there was but a handful. I bought them all, and I read them all. But if you go online now and Google Yemen, books on Yemen, you'll find a sizable library. And most of them were written post-2015. Because that's when Yemen fell apart. And it does seem like readers are more drawn to disaster than success. 2014, a rebel force began threatening the government and they took Sana'a, which is the capital of Yemen. The president had his uh, operations set up in Aden near the, uh, the coast of the Red Sea. And by early 2015, he and his government resigned and fled. The Houthis were making good progress and taking more and more ground. And the Saudi, Saudi Arabia, which is right to the north of Yemen, grew concerned because the Houthis are a rebel force that's Shia, and it's sponsored by, armed by, and supported by Iran. Iran is a, the, the major Shia uh, Muslim uh, country in the world, whereas the Saudis are Sunni. Uh, you think, well, they're both Muslim. Why, why is there concern on the part of the Saudis? Well. I can't really develop that this morning. You can read up on that, the split over <clears throat> in history between the Shia and the Sunni. <clears throat> and there's a lot of <clears throat> animosity between those two groups. And so Saudi uh, Arabia rallied another eight Sunni countries and they went to war. And so Yemen has been the battlefront for a war, essentially a war fought between uh, Saudi Arabia and Iran for these last <clears throat> six years. And after all these years, there's about 100,000 or more, <coughs> excuse me, dead in Yemen. And unfortunately, those are all, not all combatant deads. Um, as is often the case in war, it's the civilian population that pays the ugliest price. And so today, not only are there a lot of dead Yemenis, there are a lot who are displaced, hungry, out of a population of about, <clears throat> excuse me, 30 million, four million of them have been driven from their homes, either because of war or because they can't find food. 
and another million of them of of the uh, in addition to those four million, another million have uh, left their homes and kind of established do-it-yourself, what I call do-it-yourself refugee camps. Do it yourself because the government has no resources or capability uh, to run an operation like that. The government is barely surviving. And so one family might go find a couple trees and they cat pitch a tent there in the shadows of the trees and other families come along and see that there's water there and, and they pitch a tent as well and soon there might be eight, 10, 12 families living in that same spot. In Yemen today, one child dies every 10 minutes. And I'm not talking about from cancer or from this or from that, things that children might die from here. I'm talking about dying from preventable diseases every 10 minutes. And that child that just died a few minutes ago was somebody's son or daughter. It's easy to forget about the impact when you think about numbers. Forget the impact to individual people, the weeping that goes on, the covering of the body and burying it in the ground that a mom and dad has to do. <clears throat> Last week we talked about the economy in India and said that the average Indian worker makes about $3,100 a year. In Yemen, that's about $2,200 a year. Again, try to imagine making do with less than $200 a month. Feed your family, take care of all that needs to be done. Inflation this year stands in Yemen at about 30%. It means your $100 that you had last year is now worth 30% less. 20% unemployment. I'm really surprised at that based on how chaotic things are in Yemen. I would have thought it'd be worse. 16 million people are in the words of the United Nations, food insecure. I always think that's a um, uh, almost funny way to describe people who can't find enough food. Food insecure basically means that 16 million <coughs> Yemenis or half of the population of that country don't know where their next meal is coming from or how they're going to find it. On top of that, another 5 million Yemenis are on the, quote, brink of famine. Again, it's another... Fancy way to describe people who are starving to death. So two-thirds of the population of Yemen are in danger of starvation, in danger of not being able to find enough food, not just for the next meal, but for, for the next day. And as we look at the food, pro food shortages and we look at uh, all the chaos in the land, the temptation is to say, well, that is because of war, and if we could just bring peace to Yemen, everything would change. It's true that war is causing a lot of this, but that's not the full answer. Now, how many of you like to play Scrabble? Any Scrabble fans here? All right. Um, do you know a word that starts with Q that doesn't require a U? I was looking for one of those words last night. Betty and I were playing Scrabble last night. Can you think of a word that starts with Q? Huh? I can't hear you. I'm deaf. Uh, yeah, but you're not allowed to use proper names in Scrabble. Oh, what's that? QI. That's a word? Tell my wife, because she won't believe me if I use that. The one that uh, Betty and I often use uh, is cat. 
Q-A-T. Now, if you spell it in the Arabic, it's K-H-A-T. And cat is uh, grown widely in Yemen. It's, it's a drug. It's a leafy shrug, shrug, shrub. And, and an amazing percentage of Yemeni men and increasingly Yemeni women and even uh, teenagers on down to 12 spend their afternoons sitting together and chewing cat. Yemen has some tillable ground, but farmers in Yemen don't grow wheat, they don't grow corn, they don't grow alfalfa, they don't grow anything that might contribute to a food source. In fact, even though Yemen imports 90% of its food today, before the war, they were importing about 80% of their food. Why? Because the farmers can make way more money growing cat than they can anything else. And so, and so today, it's interesting, someone has said that there's essentially an um, undeclared ceasefire every day from about noon to four while people gather in warehouses and homes and out in the streets to ch- chew cat and chit-chat. And it, it, you can imagine the impact on a country, let's just say this happened in the United States, that every afternoon the nation's workforce would spend, would spend the entire afternoon getting drunk. That's a little what's happening in Yemen. So you don't have productivity. Uh, this narcotic dulls the brain. Uh, it steals grocery money. I mean, this costs to buy it every day. And that's what people do. And the amount, and then you think about the agricultural impact, the amount of cat that it takes an adult male to chew in the afternoon, uh, take three bananas and put them together, and that's about the the size of the bag uh, that they buy for an afternoon. It takes from planting to harvest, it takes about 130 gallons of water to irrigate that, just that, that little amount. And so Yemen's water table is dropping like a stone every year. About 20 feet a year, the water table is dropping, 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 dropping. And the day's going to come when they're not going to be able to irrigate those fields of cat, nor anything else that they might want to plant to save people's lives. Yemen's most famous revolutionary and poet back in 1958 wrote, truly, cat is Yemen's top ruler. In other words, everybody does what cat wants. You see, sometimes below the surface, a food problem is more than a food problem. Believe it or not, there's a tiny church in Yemen. We're not sure how big it is. Estimates run anywhere from 3,000 to 60,000 Christians. 99.7% of the population are Muslim and conversion from Islam to any other faith is a capital crime and if the government doesn't put you to death they they might not have the opportunity your family might kill you or your tribe might kill you almost all the people of the different people groups in Yemen are considered unreached unreached means that Less than 2% of the population are believers, and that's true of every people group 
that is there. Uh, just a reminder again that I have some of these prayer uh, digests out there that you can pick up today, uh, one per family, of the 31 largest people groups, uh, unreached people groups around the world, uh, over 10 million. So all of these in here um, are large unreached people groups, and there's one in here from Yemen, northern Yemeni. Uh, I'm actually hoping to meet uh, a Yemeni man this week and have some conversation uh, with him, someone who lives here in the area. But you just think about that. If that were true of the United States, that 99.7% of people here were unreached. Is that over 300 million people? Listen to the words of Jesus as he had a conversation in John 6 with a group of people. Um, and let me tell you about this group of people's experience. So the day before, Jesus had uh, fed them. The people he's having a conversation with in the verses we're going to read. He had fed them with miracle food. You remember the feeding of the 5,000? Which was probably the feeding of 8,000 or 16,000. The 5,000 was just the number of men. And the people had come out into the wilderness. They didn't plan to be out there as long as they were and hadn't brought enough food along. And the disciples were able to find this one little boy that had the foresight to bring a lunch along. Remember this story? He had some food, he had some bread, he had some fish. And Jesus took the food and he multiplied it. And thousands of thousands of people ate what had been a lunch for just a small boy. And, you know, progressive Christians look at that and say, oh, the, the little boy's, um, his servant heart uh, prompted the other people to share their lunches that they had there as well. No, no, that's not what the text says. It says that Jesus multiplied the food. And so these people had the privilege of eating miracle food, and yet they have this seemingly insane conversation with Jesus the very next day, beginning of verse 30. They answered, show us a miraculous sign if you want us to believe in you. What can you do? After all, our ancestors ate manna while they journeyed through the wilderness. The scriptures say Moses gave them bread from heaven to eat. And Jesus corrected them. I tell you the truth, Moses didn't give you bread from heaven. My father did. And now he offers you the true bread from heaven he's making a distinction between what he's talking about and what they ate the day before the true bread of god is the one who comes down from heaven and gives life from the to the world so he's talking now not about uh, dinner rolls or or pita bread he's talking about someone who comes down from heaven and that someone gives life to the world i wish the translators of the NLT had left the word the in there before life gives the life he's not just talking about any life he's not just talking about your earthly life he's talking about the life that goes on forever sir they said give us that bread every day and Jesus replied I am the bread of life whoever comes to me will never be hungry again Whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. 
Now, it still boggles me to think that the people that are talking to Jesus on this day had received the miracle food the day before, something very akin to what God had given their ancestors in the wilderness years ago in manna. And yet they're still asking Jesus for a miracle. I think it's indicative, indicative that they didn't really want more food. They were simply skeptics who were trying to get Jesus to do miracles so they could go like this, a little like King Herod when Jesus was taken before him shortly before his death. Show us a miracle. Show me a miracle. Not so I can believe in you, but just show me a miracle. It's a little like going to the fair. It's a little like going to the circus. It's a little like going to a movie. Show us a miracle. Give us food like our ancestors were given food in the wilderness. And Jesus corrects them. He's like, it wasn't Moses that gave you food. You have to remember the, the mindset of the average Jew during Jesus' day. <clears throat> it's like we already, have a, we already have a legacy ancestor. We already have a wise rabbi in, in Moses who had a, had a direct line to God. And, and he, he is the one that we appeal to. We go back to the law of Moses and, and we live by the law of Moses. And we really don't need any new itinerant rabbi to show up on the scene. And so they're contrasting Moses with what, and what can you do? Jesus says, it wasn't Moses that saved your ancestors. It was God. And, and there's still a need that you have in order to be made right with God. And he goes on to talk about the living, uh, the true bread of life. I think about the attitude of so many people that bumped into Jesus during his day. They, they, they weren't really looking for what he came to offer them they were they were looking for things that they might add to their uh, own religious ideology they were looking for something that uh, might impress them that something that might be an additional element to their faith but they weren't looking for something that fulfilled their faith and make no mistake about it Jesus did not come to throw out Judaism Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, I have not come to abolish the law, I've come to fulfill the law. There's a reason that Messianic Jews speak of themselves as completed Jews. Why? Because they have Jesus. And that's where all of Judaism was headed. And yet, people were stuck there. We have our faith. We don't want you to confuse us with anything. Jesus says, you got bread. Your ancestors got bread, came down from heaven, but now he offers you the true bread from heaven. He's not saying that the manna was false bread, but rather it was simply bread. That was it. All it did was feed the body for today or this, this meal, and then you're going to need more. He says, the true bread of God is the one who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. There's this food the skeptics wish Jesus would give, and Jesus says, no, I've got food. I'm your Savior. I wish you wanted this food. Now, let me make a point here that I think is important, especially when we think about uh, mission. There's a lot of argument today, and there's been arguments down through really the centuries I've been part of these debates myself about whether or not mission means that we give people the gospel or we give them food and clothing and medicine or do we give them a blend of both. And I think it's really important coming out of this text that Jesus emphasized that his father gave their Jewish ancestors manna every day except for Sabbath 
for 40 years. God didn't say to the Jewish people who were starving to death out in the desert, uh, well, you just have to get by on me. Just get by on your worship. Just get by on your faith. Just get by on me. No, he gave them bread. Why? Because they needed bread. He gave them water. Why? Because they needed water. And yet it didn't stop there. And this is the danger that I see in mission sometimes is where we do those things and those things are important and especially in some restricted countries, those things are the only thing you can do to begin with. But if we stop there, you know, James talks about chapter 2 that if we see someone who is hungry or we see someone who is in raggedy clothes and we don't provide them with clothes or we don't provide them with food, what good is our faith? But that's not the end of the story. Jesus says there's, there's another kind of bread that you need that goes beyond simply dinner rolls or even H2O. You need me. And I think this debate in mission is healthy, and, but we have to say both matter to God because people matter to God. When people are hungry, that matters to God. That's why he gave his people manna. When people are thirsty, that matters to God. When people don't have medicine, that matters to God. But there is a life that's going to come to an end here. And we're not going to need food in heaven. And those who are under God's wrath are not going to need food in hell. And so we need to give the living bread that Jesus is. Jesus goes on to say in verse uh, 35, I am that bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never be hungry again. Verse 34, after Jesus had made his initial comments, the people replied, sir, give us that bread every day. I, they're thinking, okay, if I get this kind of bread, I don't have to put money aside for the budget for grocery shopping. I don't even have to go grocery shopping anymore. I don't have to cook anymore. All my life would be so different. This would be so great. I don't think they have any concept at this point what Jesus is offering until Jesus says this, whoever comes to me will never be hungry again. You have a good meal? Oh, that's great. Six hours later, maybe four, maybe two, you're hungry again, right? And then you have to eat again and you have to eat again. And you have to eat again, and you have to eat again. Correlate this with the Old Testament covenant people. Israel, Israelites made sacrifices over and over and over and over. And we get to the book of Hebrews, and the writer says, Jesus sacrificed once for all. And only a Jew who was continually offering goats and sheep and bulls and turtle doves could appreciate the finality of that once for all. Jesus said, if you come to me, you'll never need bread again. I'm the living bread. I'm the eternal bread. I'm the enduring bread. There's no other food that you need tomorrow. How does Jesus' words help anybody in Yemen. I got uh, a number of emails this past week, people asking me, do you know of any 
organizations that help in India uh, that you could recommend for us to give some gifts to. And uh, I gave some response to that. Or some good organizations to channel some money for unreached people groups, and I responded to that. I don't have anybody to recommend for Yemen. The aid agencies that are working there on the ground are either Islamic, and one of the things that we know is true is that the Islamic aid agencies or their representatives on the ground are making sure that Christians are being deprived of any of that aid. Then we have the United Nations, we have Save the Children, there's a whole slew of organizations that are operat uh, operational there. But if you look about what they do and how they do it and their reliability and how much of the funds go to Yemen versus administration and so forth, I don't have a single agency, and I've looked at over a dozen, that I could recommend that you give money through. And you can't go there. You can't get on a plane and go there. Well, you might be able to, but you're probably not going to come back alive. So what do we do? If we care at all about people that we can't get to, what do we do if we care at all about people that we can't um, give money to? I'm convinced that there's a wonderful, wonderful message in that that God has for us. And that is that you can do the best thing, the most important thing you can do for anyone without getting on a plane, without writing a check. And that is to get on our knees and call out to God for people that we can't help tangibly. You know, we, we talked last week about my dream that in the years ahead, we're going to see dozens of people leave Keystone, pack their stuff up, sell their stuff, and leave with their families to go to unreached people groups all around this world. But the vast majority of us will not do that. And yet the vast majority of us can reach people all over the world through prayer. Oh, how I long for, to, to have God strip me of more and more of my stuff so that I can believe with greater and greater confidence and be drawn with more and more clarity to my knees to intercede for people. And not just go to them, not just put my arm around them as important as that is. Not just give money to them as important as that is to say the real work is done on our knees. And so I want to ask you this morning to do as we did the other week, to get on our knees and call out to God for the country of Yemen and do what we can do despite all the things we can't do. So if you're able, would you get down on your knees and join me in prayer for this nation? Father, a place like this, with the people who live there enduring what they're enduring, if we're honest, makes us ask questions that might almost seem blasphemous. God, why am I in this country, and why was I born here, and why did I have a Christian family, and why was I reared in the church, and here are all these people most of whom know nothing about any of this. What they know is tribalism and the 
the killings that go with that and the loyalties that go with that that make other enemies automatic. They spend their afternoons chewing cat and probably during the war, they're more drawn to that. Four, six hours of kind of bliss being out of it is a far preferable to seeing the missiles coming in or, or to watch your family starve to death. Forgive us for our questions, Lord, when they don't show faith. And yet when they're made in faith on our knees, Lord, I pray that you would do exceedingly abundantly above and beyond all we could think or imagine. We pray for peace in that country. We pray for other countries that might have the leverage to bring the warring parties to the table. We, we pray for a reestablishment of a, of a government, of a central government that can bring stability, health back to agriculture, to, to the economy, to commerce, to, to the distribution of food, to the growing of food. And we pray against this insidious, destructive cat epidemic in the country. We pray that wise heads in authority in the days ahead as the government gets established again that might help teach people to grow a different crop, maybe a crop that's a food crop that could bring in uh, more dollars. We pray for the church, Lord, that you would protect it. We pray for those who know Jesus. We pray for uh, the men and the women who are on the run uh, from family members, tribal members who know that they're believers. We pray for protection for them from the terrorist groups that are operating in Yemen. We pray for food. We pray for the aid agencies that are working there that, um, that they would bring food, that they would distribute it and distribute it equitably to all in need. We pray for organizations like Doctors Without Borders who are working under horrific medical conditions with the healthcare system virtually non-existent. We thank you for their steadfastness and their determination to do what they can with so little. We pray for a future for Yemen, that a day might come that both missionaries from outside and believers from inside would fan out across that nation and bring the good news of Jesus Christ to those who are without hope that there might be a, a tempering of the animosity toward Christianity, that those who are followers of Muhammad and who read the Quran might even see the words in the Quran of, of tribute to Jesus, of Muhammad's admiration of the Christian Bible, and that we might see a, a church come from below ground to be established above ground. We pray for all of these things, recognizing that any one of them that takes place would all be a miracle. And when it happens, we'll give you praise and glory. In Jesus' name.